Previously on Out of the Main. Figuring out how the hell to get out of that bridge back to the chorus of a song, you know? Key change. Key change, right? Exactly. <laughs> Try to say this somehow. She'd go, that's perfect. Sometimes all you need is a sounding board. That's it. And if they would show you the respect that they would show a string arranger who wasn't expected to improvise his <laughs> string arrangement, right? Welcome back, everyone, to part two of our interview with the great Steve Picaro. John, welcome back. It's been a week. Uh, I can't wait to hear the rest of this. I know. I almost discarded the second half of the interview. Uh, how so? so? I'm glad you caught me on that when I tried to... Oh, that's well, right. Yes. Was, yeah. And I said, uh, you know, we're going to stop here. We're like, not really stop. Pause <laughs> was the right word. Pause. Yeah. Yes. yes. So, um, part, was, I was listening back to part one this past week, and it was amazing... Again, to like when you're in the interview, there's a lot going on. You're having the conversation, you're looking at your notes, you're planning ahead. But when you listen back to mm-hmm. it, it's like I learned so much. I, which I, of course, would imagine I would from this conversation about so much of what I love about Toto and so much uh, what I love about music in the recording process. It's just I said it last week. I'll say it again. I'm just grateful <laughs> that we get to have these conversations and hear about these stories that he remembers really well from back in the day. Yeah, it is coming at you really fast when you are in this chair. It's almost like they say in sports, you know, where the game speeds up or you need the game to slow down for you. Yeah. You know, I feel like the same way, like it comes at you rapid fire and it's not until I go back and do the edit that it really, I get a chance to listen to it again and sort of digest it all. Yep. I'll give you an example. The appreciation I had for when we started to, down the road where we wanted to hear him talk about his approach to the uh, Rosanna synth solo. Yeah. He stepped us way back to like the lead up into that. It's kind of like where he was in terms of his station in the band as a recording artist and kind of how he was always the guy that was brought in later. And uh, he wanted to approach the solo, not only musically, but logistically differently than I think what had been going on prior. Yeah. I didn't expect all of that. You know, it ends up with the, well, I ended up giving them stereo synth solo left and right. But for him to just tell us that, it it doesn't mean much but now when he gives you all of the backstory of how he got to that point why he got to that point so but he's a very like he warned us before we started talking to him that you know if you want detail from me i will give you great detail but it might be more than you asked for Uh, so he is a guy that is very detail oriented yeah yeah so one of the details that comes out i think in this next uh segment here when we get into africa a little bit and the yeah keyboard sound you you you're going to pose the question about total brass so everyone can pay attention to that yes. that's the lead in and then he talks about the sounds that they ended up using for africa <laughs> i was like right you gotta be kidding me well it well when we get there you'll hear it because he said he talks about how it was actually a preset in this cs80 and he kept trying to tweak it and make it better more interesting and they kept going back to the preset so yeah i went into my virtual computerized cs80 pulled up Brass one, synth brass one, and played the part, and then you'll hear me crossfade into Toto, and it's like it's a dead nuts match practically. Exactly, maybe a little bit of processing differently, but it's like oh my god, it is. 
Well, maybe we should get back at it that and let Steve do the splaining. Um, I think where we uh, pick up here is I kind of step back and just ask a question. I ask this often of artists, and I don't know why it's so interesting to me, but I'd like to have an artist look back at their career and sort of qualify, like, is there a favorite part? Is there a quote-unquote true part to, that you more closely identify with? So anyway, I kind of go down that road, and uh, here's how Steve responds. So Toto as a band and as individuals, you, you, there's so many different sounds that you guys are like so adept at, whether it's the what we would consider the Yachty stuff like Boz and some of the Toto catalog. But there's, you know, Prague you guys are so good at and what I, I would consider power pop and power ballads. I mean, did you guys ever have either a discussion or individually have a sense for like, this is sort of the center of the Toto sound and all of these others are arms that come off of it or was Toto really the sum of its parts? Yeah, you know, probably not enough, you know. Uh, um, We probably didn't have that enough and so certain albums we'd go off on certain tangents and, uh, uh, you know, we loved it all, you know what I mean? We, you know, um, I don't know, Toto 4 is where it came together and in a song like Rosanna, you kind of heard you heard it all. It all kind of came together there. Um, but I would say more that it's a, a, a some of its parts. There was, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, um, thought put into. Okay, now on this album, we're going to go more in this direction, and this we're going to go more in that direction. Just more of these influences just kind of came out of us. And uh, uh, you know, David Page would constantly be hearing me. I'd be playing him. Keith Emerson stuff and listening to Close to the Edge and, uh, uh, um, you know, and my brother Jeff, who was the one who hit me to all that stuff, he not long after got away from that stuff because it, uh, you know, he was so obsessed with groove and pocket and and all that kind of thing of which that stuff wasn't about. Yeah. You got to play with Yes later on, though. I don't want to go down that tangent, but uh, you had a couple tracks with them, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, but anyway, I, I, uh, um, all that stuff showed up in our music and it still does, you know? Well, then Africa is the other big, big one. And I know you've probably been asked about that a million times, but you know, going forward, it seems like, because I'm a keyboard player too. Um, and I've got a lot of virtual synths. I got the regular synths and everybody knows that when you open up one of those things and start going through presets, invariably you're going to come across something that either says Toto Brass or Africa Brass, right? That's funny. Well, I'm sure you've even seen it too. So that sound, they're they're pointing to you with it, but I'm going to, I guess I'm going to ask, is it proper to attribute that, the concept of that sound to you? Or did you hear that somewhere else and you just started to use it more regularly? Or And then I also want to know about the marimba sound, where that came from, because that's probably pre-emulator too, I'm thinking. Yeah, no, and that's the interesting part. The the brass stuff, um, I, when you're referring to total brass and presets, it's usually, uh, um, it's usually like a lead brass sound with what I call the blip in it which was a a trick Roger Lynn showed me where that came from. The perfect example is on Frank Zappa's Chic Your Booty album. Tommy Mars does a synth break. There's a synthesizer break in the middle of the song. (laughs) 
and uh, the, just the, the synth sounds on it are amazing. And when I first got my modular system, and I really didn't know what the hell I was doing with it, I just got it mostly for voices. I wanted multiple voices. I wanted multiple mini Moogs mm-hmm. to use with the sequencer I was using at the time. But I, I remember Roger Lynn, who knew a lot about synthesis uh, and was a, was, a, was a dear friend. I played him that Chic Your Booty break and this brass sound that Tommy Mars had gotten up in particular. And I was like, how the hell is he doing that? How do I do that? And Roger knew exactly what it was, was this, this, this um, technique of blipping one oscillator, one of two oscillators, using a little envelope and having it go out of tune real quick at the mm-hmm. beginning. Something that Lyle Mays did to real cool effect with, you know, in different ways on, on some of their stuff. But um, I really exploited it and uh, uh, used it quite a bit. And in the Rosanna solo, it's kind of part of, uh, uh, I think we did a little bit in 99 early on. But um, anyway, that was definitely uh, um, not my own invention by any stretch at all. That was... Uh, from Tommy Mars and uh, on that Chic Your Booty album, Yo Mama. <laughs> All right. Yo Mama. It's, uh, um, it still sounds great. Um, that's where I got that from, and I exploited the hell out of it. The actual brass sound on Africa and a lot of Toto songs is the preset CS80 brass one and two. I think it was a preset because that thing is a bear to program too. It was a preset. <laughs> no, and I, I, I believe me, I, most of what I did on a CS80 was my own sounds where, you know, were my own sounds, but I tried to recreate that brass sound, you know, to better it. Uh, Cause anything that was in a preset, you could do it manually in there. And I knew that synth in and out, mm-hmm. but nailing that brass sound was very, very elusive. And we always kind of wound up going back to that preset, <laughs> which was quite a bit. And that's the pad. That's the synth pad throughout Africa, you know, and on a lot of Toto stuff. From the very first album, Child's Anthem. Uh, the brass pads were that CS80 preset. Now, the marimba sounds... Because that's even pre-DX7, right? That's At least all the people I hung around with thought it was the marimba on the DX7. But but that's too early for that. No, this is way before then. There was no such thing as a DX7 right. yet when we did Toto 4. It was the GS1, which was not programmable. It had these little strips, and they had all these presets... But because of my relationship, I had developed this relationship with Yamaha, and they actually hooked me up. Uh, there was a guy named Gary Lewenberger. Not only was, there still is a guy named Gary <laughs> Lewenberger. Uh, um, <laughs> and a guy, also Dave Bristow, but especially Gary Lewenberger was, was key. He, he did a lot of what they called voicing or programming for the GS1. 
they had this very strange uh, you can look it up online it was this it had four tv screens <laughs> it was this very strange four operator fm uh uh system of fm and um I got to look it up. You know, the DX7's uh, six operator FM, you'd think you could get a better sound, but there was just something magical about this stuff that Gary did, the way he dialed in. David and I, he sat down with David and I, and we dialed in these those kalimba slash marimba sounds on uh, GS1, specifically for Africa. And uh, um, ah, I see it here. Yeah. Wow. It looks um, like a pianet or something. Yeah, very strange, wow. very strange looking synth. Uh, very un- they cut. They listed for sixteen thousand dollars, and they weren't even programmable. You know, <laughs> wow, the most uncost effective synth in the history of mankind. But you made it uh, iconic. What's so cool about Yamaha that because of that, they were able to figure out how to make a uh, a DX7 that brought the next thing, the yep. most cost effective synth in the history of mankind. So. Uh, you know, you got to give it to Yamaha. And possibly the most used synth of all time, as it eventually seemed to turn out. And overused. Yeah. <laughs> and overused. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, you didn't want to go down a rabbit hole, but I'm curious because I bet not a lot of people know the full rabbit hole that is your affiliation with the Yes Guys, which eventually finds its way back to the Someday Somehow album because Billy Sherwood's brother, Michael, right? Aren't they brothers? Yep. And he appears quite... Uh, extensively on your record. So take us through that little chronology, if you don't mind. Yeah, my brother, we were rehearsing at Leeds uh, Rehearsal Studios. My my best friend, Andy Leeds, had owned these rehearsal uh, studios that we rehearsed at. And my brother, Jeff, called me out of the rehearsal studio one day, says, you got to hear this band that's rehearsing over here. And I listened to them. And actually, we wound up going in and watching them. It was a, these kids from Las Vegas, and the name of the band was Logic. And they just were amazing. All of them were amazing, and their sound guy was amazing, the way he was cueing tape slaps in and just working it. And uh, I love these guys. And uh, um, David and I and and Tom Knox wound up producing an album. We wound up getting them a record deal with A&M. And um, the bass player was this young kid, Billy Sherwood, and his older brother, Mike, was the keyboard player. And Mike and I uh, wound up... uh, um, Becoming writing partners. He was one of my main guys for quite a while when I really first got into writing songs a lot. He was not only my, my, my lyricist on a lot of my early stuff, um, that wasn't just on my own, but, uh, he was just an incredibly musical guy. Um, unfortunately he's no longer with us. Um, in 19, I guess it was 92. Billy had started, uh, Billy Sherwood had begun uh, a relationship with, uh, with the guys in Yes, Chris Squire, yep. his hero right. in particular, and Alan White. And uh, Billy was doing some writing with Chris, and they were doing some stuff. And uh, anyway, Chris wound up doing this thing called the, uh, uh, the Chris Squire Experiment. He had this little short-lived band that was him and Alan White. And uh, there was also Mark Williams, Joseph Williams' brother. Oh, oh, wow. I didn't know that. Played some drums in it. It was Billy. Jimmy Hahn, the guitar player from Logic, was in it. And, uh, and I was doing keys. I was doing uh, keyboards in it. I'd been out of Toto for a little while and was kind of floundering around. And they asked me if I'd be interested in doing this. And these guys were such my heroes. Uh, I was glad to. And uh, we did like a 10-city 
tour of California. We just played clubs up and down the West Coast. And uh, that was pretty much the end of it. And then Jonathan Elias, uh, a producer that had been working with um, that had been working with John Anderson, mm-hmm. and uh, and a lot of the guys in Logic wound up. Jonathan had a jingle house, yep, called Elias in in Santa Monica, and I mean, I know him well. Yeah, yeah, a lot of those yep. guys were working there. Uh, Jimmy Hahn, Mike Sherwood. Uh, I even think Billy might have been there for a little while. Um, no wonder I couldn't get any gigs. I lost them all to Elias Music. Now I get it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, he still does quite a lot of stuff. They, uh, um, Jonathan had started working with John Anderson yep. and uh, had brought us in on this Union album. And uh, um, that was kind of a strange experience. Um, and I know that like Rick Wakeman, you know, of course, one of my heroes you know totally hated the fact that us you know a band like yes that la studio musicians would brought in a pop guy (laughs) would be called in to play on a yes album i know he hated it and he (laughs) hated what we did and he hated the songs we worked on and uh uh, ah well well just real quick while we're in the rabbit hole because i found myself uh making a fortuitous discovery in this rabbit hole john i should save this for found at sea but i'm not going to but uh so you played with Billy Sherwood in Robin Ford, right? On this Return to the Dark Side of the Mood, uh, Moon, it was a tribute album. Yeah, no, I didn't work with anybody. Billy started doing this side thing where he would do these tribute albums. Mm-hmm. Billy was producing uh, uh, Billy was always real good in the studio, and he was uh, um, some company. There was a a company that that started hiring Billy to do a series of tribute albums. Billy did many of these, and uh, uh, so I was never in the studio with Robin Ford or anything like that. Billy just would ask me. He would reach out to all these different guys and uh, ask them to do overdubs to contribute parts. You know, uh, everyone was kind of working in isolation. Okay. So you sent the synth part that you did in that tune? I believe so. It's pretty killer. I gotta say. It's the main lead, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. I don't remember it, to tell you the truth. I'd have to freshen up my memory. I've done a bunch of those for Billy. We didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I am going to put you on the spot here because (laughs) you you told us you didn't want us to just turn you loose on something. So I'm going to... the. I don't know where to begin to ask you about human nature. I know so many things have been asked of you. I would like you to dispel the rumor or tell the story about it uh, being discovered on a used cassette. But the other part I wanted to ask is, is there anything about that session or the prepping you did beforehand that you had built it all out with your arpeggiators and drum machine and... Is there anything about that that you weren't asked that you wish you were that you wanted to tell? Any little nuance or anything? That's a good question. Uh, and the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad to. Uh, uh, yes, it was a used cassette. I I uh, I was the um, I was the house engineer at David Page's studio, the Manor. <laughs> Quincy Jones had been I'd been working on the album already, doing synth sessions for the Thriller album. Um, but he had been asking, he wasn't asking me for songs. He was asking David Page for songs. And, and the direction was he was looking for something like My Sharona. 
Wow. Couldn't have been further away from human nature. You know what I mean? He was asking David for up-tempo stuff. And David was in the studio, uh, was in his home studio working on stuff. And um, Quincy was sending an assistant to pick up, pick up tapes, to pick up cassettes. And believe me, we used to buy uh, uh, cassettes by the case. Yeah. But um, we had we had been on the road. You know, we were on the road and back home. We're doing sessions, and then we'd be back on the road uh, for Total Four, and and it was a lot of back and forth. And I worked on Human Nature a lot on the road on a four track cassette. I'd done a lot of work on it, and um, I had just had gotten home and I'd made a copy. I'd made a a, a little two track of the where it was at right then, and uh, it was just me singing a rough vocal, singing the same verse lyric kind of over and over again and uh um but i had my tape slaps <laughs> for the why for the chorus part were happening and uh you know it was all about the atmosphere for me mm-hmm. and uh um anyway i just made a i just made a cassette of it and suddenly david had called down to me and said hey those two things we were working on last night that you know those two things that he that he was working on last night i was helping him with he said throw those on cassette quincy's assistant's coming over to pick them up. And, uh, and that was the last cassette. Some people think I had some ulterior motives. <laughs> I would have never, it was an unfinished song. The, there were no finished lyrics on it. There was no vocal. I would ever, ever, ever in a million years present to a Quincy Jones. I immediately fast forward the tape, turned it over and relabeled it <laughs> and put David's songs on so that, that's what he would hear when he put the wow. A side of the set in, you know. <laughs> and then it wasn't until the Thriller 25 anniversary release where there was a Quincy Jones interview on it, you know. And he said how, I mean, the detail of, of um, this was the missing piece as far as how he heard it. Uh, um, he said he had, he said how he had listened to the David's, the cassette we had given him. And I think he just left it going. He just left it going and went about his business in his office. And, uh, obviously auto reverse kicked in, mm-hmm. you know, now these <laughs> tapes that we made, these were custom, these were usually custom tapes and there was like enough room for two songs on it. But I, I hated using 60 minute cassettes or something like that when most of the time we were recording one or two songs. So we had these custom like 10 minute cassettes made. So it must not have been that long where auto reverse kicked in and he heard <laughs> my version of human nature and just really dug the, uh, uh, love the vibe of it, love the atmosphere of it. Wow. So then was it Michael who finished the lyrics or did they ask you to write lyrics? No. No, I they asked me to finish the lyrics, which I did, and Quincy was very underwhelmed. He loved my title. <laughs> he loved my chorus. You know what I mean? But my verse lyrics were kind of it was a little too personal or whatever. Yeah. And and uh, he asked me, he said, Do you mind if I let someone have a go at the verse lyrics? And I was like, Absolutely. I had abs you know, I didn't have to even think about it. I was like, sure. And uh, he called up a publisher uh, um, who hooked him up with John Bettis. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Bettis did the verse lyrics. We kind of got together. I remember the first time Quincy showed me the verse lyrics, and I was like, they were perfect mm-hmm. to me. And uh, um, we kept my chorus intact exactly like it was lyrically, and uh, we kept my title 
And um, that was great. I mean, you know, I, I can't give John Bettis enough credit for elevating this, you know, taking this record and turning it into a song. Yeah. You know what I mean? Giving it a, a narrative, a beginning and a middle and an end and uh, uh, just elevating it, you know. Well, you got yourself into a little trouble. Uh, was it once before or once after? I'm trying to get the chronology right. Where you sang like a scratch vocal and then you never got the opportunity to fix it, right? I'm thinking of the stories I've heard about It's a Feeling from Toto 4. It's Didn't you say something about the second verse you intended to rewrite yeah, the lyrics? Yeah, that was one that got away with me. I'm, <laughs> that's something I'm kind of really embarrassed about. You know what I mean? Is but that's that, such that an one. atmospheric song that the repeat lyric to actually works from the listener's standpoint to me. I'm glad to it hear really you does. from your mouth. You know what I mean? <laughs> because, uh, you know, I always meant to write another verse, you know what I mean? To write another verse there, and I just... <laughs> I I never could, and I should have asked for help. I should have uh, done something, uh, but um, it is what it is. Everyone loves it. Everyone loves it. Yeah, no, it's one of my favorite things because it's so out there. It's yeah. in such this weird key. The chord changes are so are so strange. Uh, um, and James Newton Howard string arrangement done in London. At Abbey Road with the LS, you know what I mean. I mean, it just uh, uh, was so cool. You know what I mean oh, to yeah. have a song done up like that. Whew. You know how many people write songs in the key of uh, G sharp minor? You know what I mean. <laughs> I've done A flat minor, but never <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. We've all done A flat minor. Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, last question for me, Steve, is I'm curious about your your screen work because you went on to compose for screen. Um, in particular, I'm interested in the Justified stuff. So Justified is a series on FX, right, that you've been scoring and writing songs for for a long time. Um, the I never knew that the character was based on an Elmore Leonard character. And Elmore Leonard has a connection to Detroit, where we're from. So Exactly. Yeah. So um, how did you come into that work? And is there... A, a piece that you're most proud of? Yeah, no, there was. I was there for the whole the initial run. There's another version of it coming out that actually uh, uh, this takes place in Kentucky. The new version is going to take place in Detroit. I oh, believe. really? Cool. Actually, yes, yes, and uh, um, yeah. Uh, the showrunner is uh, Graham Yost. Was the guy who hired me, and and the way I got the gig was. Uh, through a guy I wound up uh, uh, being very close with, um, uh, Greg Sill, who uh, was the music supervisor. And we'd been doing some stuff together film-wise. And um, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, uh, you know, my, my film career, my scoring career was definitely mixed. There was some, there's some things on my uh, IMDB I wish I could take <laughs> off. <laughs> don't we all? Yeah, I was going to say, every artist right. has something. Don't, don't we yeah. all? Don't we all? Yeah, no, my film career, I I loved scoring the film. I, I love the process. I love being a part of something like that. I loved being on a team. I I loved uh, uh, I loved the deadline. I didn't know initially whether I could. You know, per our earlier discussion, uh, um, Toto never really had deadlines. We would add another month onto our 
studio schedule constantly. Another week for Mick. Yeah, we need another week. You know, we never really. Um, uh, you could see by my writing output with the band. There was even an album that I didn't have any songs on. There were so many writers in the band. It wasn't like, come on, you got to have three songs by August of this year or you're in trouble. Nobody cared. You know what I mean? There was no deadline. So when my friend James Newton Howard, who was doing very well in the film world, asked me if I'd be interested in writing to film, you know, my, my response was, I don't know if I could have music ready by Wednesday, <laughs> you know? Right. I really didn't know, and uh, I found out that not only could I, but I loved it. I loved the discipline of it. I loved the deadline of it. I loved uh, um, showing myself that I could. That I again, it kind of uh, it kind of made me grow up and realize that sometimes when you go in the studio, it's work. It's uh, you know what I mean. You got to get you got to deliver. I never not delivered. You know what I mean. Uh, uh, You've got to deliver on those deadlines. And um, sometimes your family has to suffer. Sometimes your personal life suffers. But um, sometimes artists need them, you know, otherwise you never finish. So, yeah. we, I mean, that's where we started this conversation. But. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. So, um, so there was a, there's a lot in my film career that I wasn't proud of. And it was kind of spotty. It was kind of up and down. I always, I feel like I've won the lottery several times in life. And, uh, my film career and the way it started was again me me uh, uh, the first meeting I ever had for a TV show I got it the first movie I ever met for I got it and uh, I thought wow this is this is easy <laughs> you know what I mean and then uh, uh, and then soon after reality set in and it wasn't always easy you know my career was very much up and down. And uh, luckily, though, I'm, I'm proud to say, though, that it ended on a real high note with Justified. Justified was a show I was really proud of to be part of. I thought it was a very cool show. It was very different. I was kind of doing, working in a world, you know, it was a guitar, a guitar-driven score, and I don't play a lick of guitar, I, uh, uh, but I can compose for it. And uh, um, I had this guy, Mark Benilla. Was uh, was my right hand man playing all the guitars and even helping me with some of the writing when when the schedule got too intense. I got to mention Mark, and um, it was a great experience. And all the producers, starting with Graham Yost on down, completely like ran interference for me. I mean, sometimes with TV, um, you know, in movies you pretty much only have to answer to the director, you know. But in TV, there's all these camps sometimes, you know what I mean? And often you can get conflicting input. Like, and like they say, everybody knows and everyone on television knows their job and exactly how the music should go. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. You know, and you get, you've got the network, you've yeah. got the studio. There's all these different camps. Yeah. And, yep. and really quite often you'll get conflicting input, you know what I mean, uh, as far as the direction you should be taking. And uh, I was proud of the fact that I could kind of thread that needle sometime and make everybody happy. But, um, you know, suffice to say, at the end of the day, I'm now I'm doing whatever the hell I want to do, which is writing songs. And and uh, I'm using that discipline from television and from, from film and stuff to finish stuff, to make sure a couple days a week I'm doing nothing but checking off boxes 
even on stuff that's hard to do. That third verse lyric, that yeah. getting from the from the cool bridge I wrote that I wound up in some weird key, figuring out how the hell to get back to uh, the chorus. Uh, um, I, I love it all, and I'm I'm uh, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. You're not making these songs just for yourself, though, right? Are we going to have a new album at some point? Is that the, the ultimate goal? Well, yes, no, absolutely. I'm speaking of which. I'm. A, it's been six years. I definitely have enough low hanging fruit, very low hanging fruit, that I have uh, um, definitely another album. All kind of. I have more than enough for my next solo album. Um, I'm always hoping. You know, it's always in the back of my mind that what happened on Human Nature is going to repeat itself. And and by some fluke, Bruno Mars or Adele or The Weeknd even, or you know what I mean, the the artists that I can relate to, that I understand that are out there are going to hear something of mine and want to do it. You know Mm. what I mean? Someone someone who tours and has a record deal and... and, uh, I just want to be a songwriter at this point. And, uh, well, that, you know, I'm not a touring musician, but I do, uh, I am, as you know, as we've talked about before, I am, uh, this is where I start embarrassing the guests. I am always inspired by the work that you laid down before me because when I'm doing the page 99 stuff, you know, when I'm thinking piano, I'm usually thinking Paige or Foster, but when I'm thinking pads and synths and arpeggiators and all that stuff, I'm always asking myself, what would Steve do? Because I want those sounds, the things that you put into the culture of American music, I want them to live on. And that's that's the whole goal of this. And uh, yeah, so now I'm embarrassed. By the way, on Human Nature, that's not an arpeggiator. That's a written out sequencer part. But it's sequenced, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yep. It's written out. It's not, it's no one's it's holding it. It's not just a holding it. Yeah, gotcha. And it's being arpeggiated. That was uh, David Page actually came up with that part. I can vouch for everything John just said that he's not just saying that because we have you as a guest today. This is a man who named his dog Lukather. So yeah. <laughs> I had a greyhound named Lukather. <laughs> I, so I did. If you, th- I yeah, love if you it. think he's feigning uh, adoration for Toto. <laughs> yeah, I, I was learning. I was just starting to learn to play guitar at the time. And, and that was so... My wife asked me, what should we name the dog? And I had Luke on the mind. I said, what about Luke? <laughs> well, at his idol, of course, he, being a drummer, his idol was Jeff. And he got into Berkeley College of Music just based on everything that Jeff taught him through osmosis. So there you go. Yes. All right. Well, good luck on the next album. If you know any, uh, do you know any studio cats you could bring in to maybe <laughs> lay down some parts? <laughs> uh, no, I really can't wait to share it with everybody. Yeah, we can't yeah. wait. It's, uh, definitely, uh, um, it's definitely different than the last one. And it's, uh, if you like... If you like my kind of music and my chords and my sounds and stuff like that, it's oh yeah. It's, uh, um, I think I've taken it to another level. Cool. I'm really excited. Keep us posted. If you want to come back and when it's ready to go, uh, we'd love to have you back to talk about it. All right, guys. Thanks, Steve. Well, once again, our honor and privilege to talk to the great Steve Picaro uh, for a two-part episode. Uh, Great to hear these stories. Even the stories I've heard somewhat in the past are, you know, like we've talked and you've read about how human nature came to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but to hear Steve's take, like directly from him with greater detail, it's just so fascinating to me. Well, I never heard the part about uh, Quincy was looking for something like my Sharona. That was a, a big <laughs> surprise. And, and you know, and, uh, like Steve said, that human nature couldn't be more different from my Sharona. But what that tells me about Quincy is his openness yeah. to hearing something great and recognizing it. And 
even a guy like Quincy doesn't know exactly what he wants till he hears it. He thinks he wants to hear my Sharona, and he ends up with human nature. But that's because, you know, you've got to have a producer has to have an open mind to what they're hearing. You cannot have tunnel vision. So, you know, Quincy's one of the greatest, if not the greatest. And simultaneously to have the vision of what, whatever that demo was, what it could become, you know, once he got a hold of it. So, yeah, it's true because Steve seemed to indicate it wasn't much. Yeah. So, especially knowing, you know, he could have been tunnel vision on, or give me some Masharona, give me some Masharona. And, but he heard that and, you know, to his credit, it ended up being a huge, huge hit and a great tune. You know, if there were a bunch of songs on that tape, they were all going after the quote, my Sharona sound. You know, he could go into almost uh, La La Land. You become numb to what you're hearing. And then all of a sudden, this thing that's completely different comes on mm-hmm. and wakes you up, right? Just because it's yeah. so different. That may have played a role, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, so much fun. Uh, but all good things much must come to an end, including the forthcoming lightning round. But it has to start before it ends. So are you ready? Okay, well, that was loud. All right, I guess I get to go first this week, don't I? Or is there some reason why I shouldn't? Nope, you should, unless you steal mine, then you shouldn't. All right, so here what I here's what I have found at sea. Our uh, friend DJ, Eric Maddox, if you remember him from New Coast Breeze, we interviewed him uh, quite a while back now. Yes. He uh, is a connoisseur of what we would call modern yacht and modern West Coast. He uh, was a big fan or is a big fan of the English group Super DB, and he had posted when their new single had just come out, I think this is really cool. I know what you're going to say about the synth bass, but uh, to me, this has a 70s funky retro vibe, but the synth bass is essential in creating that uh, semi-brown chicken, brown cow sound. This is, well, you last week you talked about Back to You from Steve Picaro. This is called Back to Me. Funny, I did the slap bass, or sorry, the synth bass did not have an impact on me. I, I just, I love the tune almost from the very first note. So that's a great find yeah. from Eric. Uh, good uh, selection for you, found it, see. But yeah, this synth, maybe maybe I'm coming around to it, knowing that, you know, well, you got Pate playing the used, mini Moog and songs and, you know. Yeah. It was used in the right way there. And there's a lot of, uh, if you noticed, there's a lot of synthy uh, Toto brass in there too. Yeah. So yeah. it's a double hit. What did you find at sea? Oh, well, what I found at sea doing a little bit of research, obviously I wanted to look into this Justified work. Um, I wanted to look at all the sort of composition work that he was doing for screen. But Justified is a cool thing because I later find out that it's all about um, uh, uh, Elmore Leonard character that they've adapted for the show. So I wanted to, and so I'm going through the, the soundtrack of the various season and I come across a tune that's got Bill Champlin singing lead vocals on it. So I'm like, Let's check out this one. And this is Bill Champlin with Steve Picaro doing a tune called Devil at the Wheel. Now when I saw the light, I must have passed it. Oh. Cause the devil's at the wheel. Said the devil's at the wheel. Yeah. I've never known this feeling. Notice you emphasize the H on wheel. That was nice. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I had to because it's not yeah. the uh, Yadia song, so I wanted to create a diversion for that. But that <laughs> that's got a cool vibe to it. <laughs> and yeah, how it cool does. is it to see Champlin? You know, Champlin's like very active these days. But then he's he's collaborating with Steve Picaro in the year twenty whatever it was, fifteen ish. That's just so cool. Yeah, he seems like more and more when you think about it, he seems like he's the hub of so much of the activity on the West Coast. He may not be the most famous, and he may not be the Michael McDonald, you know, up on the Mount Rushmore. But boy, everything seems to revolve around Bill Champlin one way or another. Well, the more when you get into it, the more you realize it's the background dudes of Jay Graydon, Bill Champlin. And unless you really follow music, you probably don't know who David Foster is if you're just a casual fan. But those are the dudes. Yep. Right. We might have to redo our Mount Rushmore all over again. It'd probably be different for me. Mm-hmm. Interesting thought. Michael Omardian would be the fourth. So anyways. Ooh. All right. What? Uh, so that's what I found at sea. Can I share with you a buried treasure? Sure. This one came to me just recently uh, by way of Listener Cliff. So this is like hot off the press. The mail is in. Cue the sound effect. Mail's in. Ooh. So we talk about personnel all the time. We talked about that last episode. So sometimes the personnel is a buried treasure in and of itself. So check out this that I got from uh, Listener Cliff just last night. Hey, recently discovered the podcast and have started listening from the beginning. Uh-oh. <laughs> I sh- shuddered. Going back yeah. to what we said last episode, there's always stuff in your uh, yeah. catalog you wish didn't exist. Right. Anyway, he's about halfway caught up. He's got a couple thoughts. One is uh, he bet. wanted to know why we, <laughs> why we didn't bring up the marimba solo on Moon Run. Moonlight Feels Right in the uh, episode we did about Creative Solo as well. That comes yeah. back. Spoiler alert. But eventually we do, yep. And then uh, he got to the point where we, you did the making of a case thing. So anyways, he shares with me that he... I don't know that he's making a case that this is Yachty, but the, from the Like a Rock album, Bob Seger... Yeah. It's a tune. Yeah, of all things. Whoa. It's a visual podcast, but your eyebrows just went up. They did. Uh, a song called Miami, which to me sounds like, all right, it's going to have oh, some... Boy. Uh, seahorse lyrics um it's like hey it's a sleep production listen to the harmonies there's brass at the end it's got vibe but then he says this the players on it include okay fred tackett on acoustic guitar yeah dan huff on guitar whoa uh russ kunkel on drums oh paulino da costa on percussion Hmm. uh trumpet gary grant Trumpet Jerry Hay, who does the horn arrangements, Bill Reidenbach to uh, round that trio out, Ernie Watts on sax, Mark Russo on sax, the same song that I'm going to share with you, that Miami tune, in addition to Alto Reed playing sax on Miami. (laughs) Sanborn wasn't available? I guess not. Don Henley and Timothy B. Schmidt on backup vocals, the Weather Girls doing background (laughs) vocals. I mean, how yachty does this get? Now... Ah. Slight disappointment, not very, but could you believe all that personnel is on a Bob Seger album in Like a Rock? Well, let's listen to it. Far away from home, with nothing of own, to Miami. Oh, Miami. Yeah, you're right about it not being uh, Yachty, certainly. But shocking that the buried treasures abound on that 
album from a personnel standpoint anyway yeah some of the, some of them aren't a, a huge huge surprise because Seeger was very connected to the laurel canyon and eagles side so the eagles guys being on there kunkel being on there fred tackett being on there those aren't the surprise but weather girls that's pretty uh polina da costa jerry hay those are pretty surprising and uh uh, Ernie Watts and, and Mark Russo I mean, and Mark Russo and Elto Reed why they've got three tenor players on one song I'll never know but anyways uh, really cool really cool and uh, congratulations to listener Cliff who preempted my uh, scheduled yeah you called treasure. an audible so there thank you for All that right. mm-hmm. yep well my buried treasure is not an audible I had this one planned from the beginning uh, the reason it's a buried treasure is because Steve Percaro was not an official member of Toto during the seventh one album, yet on the song that probably is considered the, in some ways, the rehash of Rosanna, or it's the the Rosanna-ish kind of song, he has another opportunity for a great solo and uh, does not fail us. This is the solo section on Pamela. Certainly worth uh, being revisited there. Oh yeah, yeah. You brought that song up in the past. Uh, I, I have, but uh, we had to focus on the solo. Oh, so good, so good. All right. Uh, so where are we now? Uh, I think that goes to off the map, right? Off the map. So you want to kick us off the map? Yeah, I might as well. Um, people should. Uh, once this episode is up, we are going to uh, probably put the video up, which is sort of an uncut version on YouTube. Kind of, you see a little behind the scenes making of. Uh, all the flubs are still in there, both of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, after we kind of <laughs> both ended, of mine. <laughs> after we kind of ended the podcast portion, we had a little later discussion with Steve, and uh, we talked about the fact that page ninety nine we covered Leah, and he went so far as to say that our version was better than Toto's, and that was a yes. shocker. And he pointed out the reason why, and you can go and get all of that information, but essentially it comes down to the way we dealt with one of the lines on the chorus that in his mind was never intended to be part of the main lead vocal. But as we know, a lot of the vocal recording was handled by David Page, so presumably Steve wasn't even there when they were recording these. But he had a placeholder line, and you'll have to listen for it, where he says, my concertina, and... It was included as part of the lead vocal on the Toto version, but in his mind, it was supposed to come from some other space and be ambient and whatever. And he went so far as to say that we got it just right and solved a problem that had been bothering him since that song came out in the late 80s about that particular lyric. So let's listen to that, and you can hear how apparently we solved a problem and, according to Steve, made it even better. Here we go. So, yeah, you talk about channeling Steve Picaro as the muse. Somehow uh, you and Russ conjured that out of nowhere. Unintentional. It was a case of, right. as I uh, said, that we, when I was mixing it, I pulled the lead vocal out and then put a lot of extra reverb and delays and bounce on the harmony that Russ had sung above the melody. 
and it put it into that other place where Steve had wanted it. And uh, when you listen to that and listen to his solo album, you can see why that would be what would fit in his ear. Yep. Yep. Well, well done. Well done. Yeah, it's got to be quite a thrill to have Steve Picaro tell you. And if you don't believe that he said this, go watch the video on YouTube. Right. That uh, watch you, it you anyway. did the song better than they did. Yeah. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, you brought up uh, two episodes ago, you asked if I ever tried to uh, finagle the Spotify algorithms. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, I I listened to this uh, album, Steve Picaro solo album, right? And then I just let Spotify run its course. And so I came across a band, a song I'd never heard of before. So maybe it's found at sea. It's definitely for me, a buried treasure. Cause I didn't know this existed. You just talked about uh, the new West coast stuff. Yeah. And I came across as being Sonic station. Are you familiar with Sonic nope, station? Not at all. Uh-uh. They, uh, this is from their 2011 debut album. To me, it sounds like they are trying to not intentionally, not to copy sort of mid to late Toto, but it really harkens to it. I love this tune. It's called, Love's gonna show the way. Yeah, I'm hearing lots of uh, Toto influences in there. The lead vocalist reminds me of somebody that I, I can't quite place maybe is it like jason chef of chicago or i don't know there is some uh huh. maybe 80s era chicago in there too yeah yeah that's, that's that's a swedish group um i was gonna say about the lead singer he doesn't sound like him but he's certainly uh challenging his upper register the way say a bobby kimball might so that brings us back on theme yeah but it's not with the same amount of power it's like it's a little airier no, it's a little softer not. approach yeah yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but I wanted to use that as an excuse to once again thank John Zaka for yeah. hooking us up uh, with Steve Picaro. And, of course, John Zaka is working on this forthcoming documentary on the life of Bobby Kimball called uh, Kite on a String. So we're looking forward to that. Thanks again, mm-hmm. John, for hooking us up. So uh, that tune, uh, what's your verdict? Is that going in some kind of mix of yours? The uh, Love's Gonna Show the Way? Yeah. Well, it, it, it got a, uh, a heart on Spotify, so I'll, I'll figure that out later, but I've got it marked. Absolutely. Modern yacht, baby. Modern yacht. All right. All right. Poloi? Poloi? 